The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today and really excited to have our guest on. Uh, We're joined today by Catherine Miles, and she's got a brand new book out called Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. And it really does dissect for us a lot of components that made up that storm, the weather forecasting, some of the people caught in the storm. It's a thrill ride, to say the least. And uh, I'm so excited to have her on. You know, a lot of people say that superstorms like Sandy may be the new norm due to climate change, though we'll talk about some varying opinions on that later in the show. Um, But if that's the case, then it's incumbent upon all of us to know how our weather systems and weather forecasting systems work. And Catherine's going to help us understand that in more detail. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Catherine. And congratulations on your new book. Thank you. I'm so glad to join you today. Well, your your book is a whirlwind, uh, no pun intended, and it takes us inside the storm. Um, I, I found it to be one of the one of the books I just couldn't put down. I read a lot of books for uh, Go Green Radio. This one was really tough to put down. It was very exciting. Um, one of the things that I just really enjoyed and learned a lot from was how you went inside the various agencies that make up our national weather forecasting system. And I was surprised to learn how many different components there are. I'd love for you to share with us what you learned about how the National Hurricane Center, the National Weather Service, and some of the other agencies work and how their roles played out during Hurricane Sandy. Sure. And what I really wanted to do here was tell a very personal, very human interest-focused story here. Um, You know, I am no scientific expert, and and I know that readers probably aren't as well, too. And so so rather than than throw a lot of terms and a lot of sort of meteorological ideas at them, what I really wanted to do was sort of show a behind-the-scenes account of how weather forecasting works, what happens when these big storms hit us, and, and why we're all really at risk. And so in a lot of ways, that story begins at the National Hurricane Center, which is staffed by incredibly talented meteorologists. But what we found with Hurricane Sandy was a lot of their protocols and procedures, a lot of the, even, frankly, some of the tools they use to predict storms don't really fit the changing landscape and the changing climate of of weather in the 21st century. And so Sandy began as a very traditional hurricane, very typical hurricane in the Southern Caribbean. But as the storm moved up the East Coast, it, it morphed into a hybrid storm. And that's where we really started to see this domino effect happen, where because of protocols, the National Hurricane Center wasn't able to issue watches and warnings. Uh, they handed off responsibility to regional National Weather Service offices, which are often understaffed, underfunded. They don't have the tools they need. 
in turn, they were handing off information to emergency managers, governors, mayors in places like Washington, D.C. and New York City. They felt like they weren't getting the information they needed. They felt like they weren't making good decisions. And then we see average Americans who are, who are dealing with the confusion, and, and they're not sure how to act either. So it really became this unnecessary ripple effect. And it's not an uncommon one in America. So I really kind of wanted to unpack how that happened why it happened, and how we can be better prepared for the next storm. Mm -hmm. And throughout your book, you emphasize the difficulty that forecasters had in predicting what Hurricane Sandy would do. Help us understand what kind of information, what kind of data points they need, and why it's so difficult for them to get that data. And this is really what surprised me when I went into researching the book, is, is just how far we need to go as a country in terms of sort of shoring up our meteorological capabilities. We used to really lead the world in terms of meteorology, and, and we're falling down now for a variety of reasons. And, and what we saw with Sandy was very early on, um, one of the models used by forecasters, and forecasters here in the States use about 40 different models to understand house storms, and not just hurricanes, but also blizzards, other big storms, what they're going to do. Early on, one of these models, the European model, predicted that the storm was going to make this crazy left hook and slam right into the mid-Atlantic. And I think everybody in the meteorological world's you know, initial reaction was, well, that's impossible. This never happens. And it really took several days before the other models started to catch up. And really, if you look at even four days out, there was still, you know, a fair amount of confusion, at least to a layperson's eyes, in terms of where the storm was going to go. Half the model said left, the other half of the model said right. And that's really where a meteorologist's personal experience and expertise comes in. They're the people who have to look at these models and then make a best guess based on what they know about storms. You know, it's funny, the story that you tell of our kind of crumbling infrastructure when it comes to our weather forecasting systems is so similar to stories that we've heard on Go Green Radio from people who talk about our water infrastructure, our uh, electricity infrastructure. It used to be that America had the gold plate standard in the world, but that's not necessarily true anymore. And you talk about this European model that was spot on early on in the forecasting for Sandy. Talk to us about the state of our weather forecasting infrastructure. How are our satellites and buoys and other crucial devices holding up? And what what does this European uh, model have that America does not? This is a really great and important question. And you're exactly right to compare it to these other infrastructure problems, whether it's bridges or roads or our electrical system. And, you know, for, for decades now, we've really let our National Weather Service languish and we're starting to pay the price. And this goes back to 1970 when, uh, President Nixon made the decision. And, and some people say it was a very political decision to locate NOAA and the National Weather Service in the Department of Commerce. And that's never been an obvious fit. In so many ways, weather forecasting transcends issues of commerce. It's, it's an issue of defense. It's an issue of the environment. It's an issue of, of you know, just about any office. And, and in a lot of ways, I think the National Weather Service ought to be its own branch. As soon as we start putting it in another category, I think what happens is we, we start to sort of isolate it and don't give it the attention it needs. And in the decades since that decision, what we've seen is just a history of underfunding for our National Weather Program. 
for quite some time, our our national weather satellites, our civilian weather satellites, were tied to the military weather satellite program. And that, by all accounts, was a disastrous marriage that, you know, just was sort of defined by infighting, budget overruns, a failure to agree on what the satellites should look like or who should be in charge of them. And by the time that, that, that ended, when President Obama severed that relationship, we found ourselves in a weather satellite gap. Uh, I have an article today in Popular Mechanics that's looking again at that weather satellite gap. Uh, the House Science Committee today just released two new reports saying, look, this gap could easily be 17 months where we're not going to have satellite information that we really need. Um, in the meantime, these new satellites that were, were scurrying around trying to get up in the air, they're sort of plagued by defects, by uh, deferrals, by, by some other problems here. You know, and then when you couple that with things like the hack of the NOAA network this mm-hmm. fall, and uh, a lot of sort of outmoded equipment where, where they're literally kind of trying to use duct tape to, to put things together in some of our, our, some of our highest standing offices. It really is an infrastructure crisis, but we have these very qualified meteorologists who aren't able to do the jobs they can and need to do because we haven't provided them the resources. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that hack, because I'm not sure that all of our listeners are aware of what happened in the fall. Um, tell us more about that and, and why that should matter to everyday Americans. And part of why listeners don't know about it is that it's been really underreported, and, and part mm-hmm. of that responsibility lies with NOAA. Um, all federal agencies are required to immediately report hacks to the Department of Homeland Security, and there's a whole set of protocols that immediately go in place in terms of trying to isolate the hack, determining uh, who perpetrated it, what the damage is, how we can prevent that. And, and for reasons that no one's been able to explain yet, Noah hid this hack, ultimately lied about this hack for a month. Um, and it wasn't until uh, a Republican representative from the House, uh, Frank Wolf, who really started investigating and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, what's going on over here? That Noah said, okay, okay, we've been hacked. Um, Representative Wolf has it on authority from the Department of Commerce that the uh, people responsible for the hack was China. We haven't seen that officially substantiated yet, though certainly um, experts in the field say it looks like a hack very similar to, to ones that China has perpetrated. Um, and basically what happened was uh, whoever did the hack went in through a particularly vulnerable network in NOAA and these network vulnerabilities were exposed months, months before this hack occurred. Um, and for a variety of reasons, Noah, Noah wasn't able to get in and sort of patch up these vulnerabilities. Uh, but, but these individuals went in through this, this vulnerable network, got in, and then were able to get into to other aspects of Noah as well, too. And one of the things that's really disturbing about this is, is because of that, that marriage of the satellite program that, that happened several years ago, the NOAA satellite network is still directly tied to the Department of Defense. So there's a direct conduit there where not only can you get in and, and mess with the NOAA technology and the NOAA information, but you can get directly from there into the Department of Defense. So some obvious issues of national security. And I don't think it's too, it's too sort of um, far a reach to imagine a sort of terrorist scenario in which um, people are able to get in and either issue false warnings uh, for weather and, and creating a sense of panic or getting in and, and withholding warnings, thereby putting Americans in danger. And when this hack occurred, in fact, 
um, the, a loop started where NOAA was issuing uh, warnings from several years ago, including tornadoes for the sort of south-central part of America. And you did see this sort of kind of minor frenzy start to happen as people, you know, thought their lives were in danger. So very scary stuff and, and absolutely stuff that's a matter of national security, things that require our attention. Talk to us about staffing levels. Um, how well are these agencies involved in weather forecasting staffed? I'm imagining that the story is similar to our infrastructure, that there's, you know, budget concerns. But just what, how bad is it when it comes to staffing levels? When Sandy hit, and so this is over two years ago, the National Weather Service had approximately 350 unstaffed uh, senior-level positions. So these are the actual meteorologists who do the forecasting, and these are high-level technicians, people who run the radar, check in with the satellite, do that kind of data work. Um, so that was, that was obviously an inexcusable number of vacancies at the time Sandy struck, which was October 2012. Currently, we have over 500 of these vacancies, and these are vacancies that have not been filled due to attrition, due to sequestration, due to issues of budget within the National Weather Service. So we've got folks there who are working, you know, well above and beyond what is expected of them in terms of their hours, their Mm -hmm. duty hours. We also have people who are told in the middle of a storm that they literally have to go home because they've exceeded their um, overtime allotments. And so in the middle of the storm, they have to get up and leave their their computers. And and this is something that the National Weather Service Employee Union is obviously undertaking. This is something that employees within the National Weather Service are standing up and saying, hey, look, you know, we need, you know, operating conditions and working conditions where we can do our jobs. Right. Wow, this is uh, an incredible undercover uh, situation that you've you've uh, exposed for us, and I'm excited to hear more. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Catherine Miles, author of Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Don't go away, folks. More Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in The Business of Living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our guest today is Catherine Miles. She has a brand new book out called Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. Catherine, you talked a lot about the role of hurricane hunters, and I'd love for you to explain what these folks do for our listeners. Let them know what role they play in accurate forecasting. These are some of the real unsung heroes, not just the Superstorm Sandy, but, but really weather in general. And uh, I had the opportunity to spend some time with them, and, and they really are these larger-than-life people. Uh, the Hurricane Hunters is a branch of the U.S. Air Force Reserve, and they fly in teams of five, uh, two pilots, a navigator, a technician, and a meteorologist. And as soon as a storm becomes a tropical depression anywhere, whether it's the Gulf or out in the Atlantic or in the Pacific, these men and women go out and they fly continuous missions into the heart of the storm. So they'll fly into the hurricane on purpose. And the reason they do this is because so much of the data that is required to predict a hurricane right now can't really be found any other way. And, you know, it's sort of surprising, but, but hurricanes remain the least known natural phenomenon out there. They're just this huge mystery to meteorologists, which is part of why predicting them accurately is so hard. And so these folks fly into the storm and they drop a series of devices known as dropsons from their plane. And as the dropson sort of falls through the storm, it's able to record wind, uh, barometric pressure, precipitation. They have several devices on the, the wings of their planes that also do. So they're the ones that diagnose that a storm has moved from a tropical um, storm to, to a hurricane, and they're the ones out there getting the data that allows the National Hurricane Center and NOAA to issue these watches and warnings. And what's so great is they love this work. It's, it's <laughs> remarkable. They get so excited flying through the storm. <laughs> That is wild. I, God bless the people who are willing to do that. That's that's incredible. You know, one of the things that made your book so enthralling for me was the firsthand accounts of all kinds of different people who were involved in the storm. And you told the story of a family or several families, actually, who were on a Disney cruise liner and they were out to sea at the time. Talk to us a little bit about their story and what happened there. Sure. And it was really important to me that I, that I put this in context. The book began as an article that I wrote for Outside Magazine about the Bounty, which was this uh, recreation of, of a tall ship that went out into the storm and, and tragically sank. And, and you know, that, that boat got a lot of criticism, and the captain got a lot of criticism for his decision to do so. And, and a lot of people were really quick to say that, that it was an anomalous decision, this decision to drive through the storm. But what I discovered in my research was, in fact, it wasn't really anomalous at all. And, in fact, these two Disney cruise ships, um, made the decision to also drive directly through the storm. And, and, and that was a little strange. Most of the other cruise ships in that area made deliberate decisions either to go far out to sea 
um, or they shifted their itineraries to put them maybe on the Gulf side of Florida instead of the coast side. But these two particular ships did not. Um, and what I learned from the passengers was, was that it was an absolutely terrifying experience for them. People who were on, for instance, a sixth floor deck were telling me these stories about waves coming up to their windows and um, entire gift shops kind of careening and crashing into itself. And um, one ship made this sort of precipitous tip, you know, and, and nobody quite knew what was going to happen. So, so really terrifying. And, um, in fact, several of them have loaded videos real-time videos up onto YouTube, which you can find if you Google it. The two ships are the, the Disney Fantasy and the Disney Magic. And I think it really calls into question not just how we address risk and the decisions that we make, but really sort of, you know, um, a relationship with the natural world is not nearly as tame as we think it is. And no matter mm-hmm. how far we go down the road of technology, you know, basic things like, waves and wind and earthquakes and weather are always going to be these formidable opponents for us, and we really need to internalize that. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the crew and, and the, the bounty. Tell us why that story was so important in your book. It started off as an important story just because it seemed so far beyond the pale. Here was this wooden ship, this tall ship, you know, built in the spirit of, of 18th century British ships out in the middle of the storm. It, it, it was not a Navy ship. It didn't have a reason why it had to be there. Um, the captain's decision to go out has been really scrutinized and been the focus of a lot of attention. Um, the ship took on water in the middle of the storm. Uh, it eventually capsized, uh, and that resulted in one of the most dangerous and one of the most expensive rescues in Coast Guard history. And both the captain and a deckhand, a lovely woman by the name of Claudine Christian, died in the this, in this storm um, and were not able to be saved. And so I was interested simultaneously in the fact that, remarkably, 16 people were saved from this rescue, which is a wonderful number, um, I was really curious about how they ended up in the middle of the storm, um, what decisions were made, uh, and, and also the, the Coast Guard rescuers themselves, who, like the hurricane hunters, are people who willingly put themselves in incredible danger. And in the case of this particular rescue, it was so dangerous that their commander told them, look, you can't go. And then they went out and sort of disobeyed his orders because it was so mm-hmm. important to them that they were able to try to save some folks. So, So, again, this question of, you know, how, how do we confront danger? What decisions do we make? And, and in a lot of ways, I think the story of the bounty or the story of those cruise ships are stories that get played out dozens and dozens and dozens of times, whether it's the mayor of New York City, whether it's a family trying to decide whether or not they should obey an evacuation order. And I think that we need to see all of these stories together to really get a sense of, of how as a culture and a society we make these decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, in talking about the impact that Hurricane Sandy had on land, we could spend easily an hour just talking about the storm's impact on New York City. But let's start by discussing what happened leading up to the storm. Should there have been an evacuation? Uh, and, and is an evacuation even possible for that many people with a storm that is as large as Sandy was? It is. And, you know, for me, one of the most chilling statistics that I saw in my research was the fact that when Hurricane Katrina was bearing down on the Gulf Coast, uh, evacuation orders were issued pretty early and and very decisively. And as a result, over 70% of the people in that region who were ordered to evacuate did evacuate. Um, 
The exact inverse is true in the case of Sandy. Over 70% of people in New York and New Jersey who were ordered to evacuate disobeyed that evacuation order. And the reasons, I think, are pretty complicated. We saw two very different responses in New York and New Jersey in terms of the storm. Governor Chris Christie in New Jersey had very strong words very early saying, look, you've got to get out. You've just got to get out. Um, Mayor Bloomberg really hemmed and hawed and, 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 in fact, issued evacuation warnings so late that a lot of New Yorkers couldn't get out. And what social scientists tell us is that, you know, Americans really need about three days to internalize an evacuation threat. You know, it really takes us that long to make sense of it, to believe that it's real, to believe that it can actually affect us, and then to get our, our belongings and our loved ones together and actually get out. And that's even more complicated in a place like New York City where so many people rely on public transportation. By the time New Yorkers were issued evacuation orders, able-bodied New Yorkers had fewer than eight hours to get out of the city using mass transit. And people in New York with functional needs, people who need assistance um, of any sort, whether it's because they're elderly, they're disabled, whatever the case may be, they had fewer than six hours to get out before their transportation was shut down. And, and there were these very, very sad, very harrowing stories. One individual in particular who heard the evacuation order, immediately left his house. He's, uh, he's in an electric wheelchair, um, went out to the bus stop. Uh, was worried his, his wheelchair was going to short out because it was raining so hard. And, and five different buses came by, and none was able to accommodate him in his wheelchair. And so eventually the transportation shut down, and he was forced to go home. Um, his house flooded, and it was only because his neighbors were vigilant and keeping an eye on him that, that he lived, and, and not everyone was so lucky. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's unbelievable. You know, we were talking about infrastructure when it came to our weather forecasting system a moment ago, but let's talk about the infrastructure that New York City lacked that might have protected the city from the storm surge and other effects of the storm. What infrastructure can you point to that uh, might have helped? You know, so much of our power grid system is a very outmoded System. You know, the average age of power generating plants in the U.S. is over 30 years old. And even something as simple as the, as the fact that, you know, we sort of drape these wires on poles, you know, is something that mm-hmm. made a lot of sense in the 19th century, but doesn't make a lot of sense in the 21st century. And as, as winds are growing, as storms are growing, those are really vulnerable things. You know, in a place like New York, so much of what happens happens underground. Mm-hmm. Um, at sea level or, or well below. And so whether it's, uh, you know, power generation, whether it's gener- backup generators, whether it's the subway system, whether it's pumping stations, those are all incredibly vulnerable, not just to hurricanes, which, you know, admittedly are, are maybe unusual events for a place like that, but also to storm surge and sea level rise, which is sort of an undeniable reality of the 21st century. And it's not just New York. I think we could pick just about any major city in the United States And I think the assessment of how well it is prepared for a changing climate is not a good assessment. Do you think it's going to take, you know, disastrous, you know, impacts like Hurricane Sandy to get us to bring these issues to the forefront of election conversations? I mean, you just never hear politicians running on a platform of, I'm going to shore up our infrastructure. And I think that's because we're not demanding that they do. And and, and I think this is a, a case where really just sort of good old-fashioned grassroots democracy 
uh, you know, and empowered citizens can do a lot. You know, I think if we really stand up and say, look, you know, part of part of being entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is being entitled to safety. And, and safety is not just flying drones or, or, you know, a military presence in the Middle East. Safety is also domestic safety. We need a weather program that keeps us safe. We need an infrastructure that keeps us safe. You know, it shouldn't take three or four weeks for people to get their power back, even after a storm like Sandy, you know. Mm-hmm. So so it's really a matter of prioritizing. And I think say, saying to our public officials, like, look, we need this. This is this is part of, of, of what, who we are, part of our fabric, part of our value system, and, and we want it now. Well, and there seems to be sort of a, you know, disagreement, if not confusion, uh, about what the role of government money is for in this country. I mean, we we really have a tough time agreeing on, you know, what the role of government is and how tax dollars should be spent. Um, but these public service, you know, and, and infrastructure dollars are critical for all of us. Um, and I would love to see people come together and demand that we, we go back to that gold plate standard where America leads the way in, in a modern society with modern infrastructure. We don't have it anymore. And it really is, I think you're exactly right, Catherine, it's up to us to begin to, to demand that. That's how our taxpayer dollars are spent. But at any rate, we've got to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, much more with Catherine. Catherine Miles, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Thank you. 
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Our our guest today is Catherine Miles. She's got a brand new book out. You can buy it on Amazon, Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. It's a page turner. In fact, the Washington Post said had this to say about the book. They said, it's what you might expect from Stephen King if he wrote nonfiction, a gripping plot with flashes of pure terror. Most astonishing? Everything Miles describes actually happened, and it really is a great book, and so I'm glad to have you on, Catherine. You know, we've been told by some that we can expect more and more megastorms like Sandy due to climate change, but one of the primary hurricane authorities in your book is not so certain about that. Tell us about what Chris Lancey, the science and operations officer at the National Hurricane Center, says when he's asked about this issue. You know, it's really interesting to me, and, and it was actually really surprising to me that, that, the, that the impact of climate change on weather remains an incredibly controversial subject in meteorological circles. And, you know, the only angry mail I've actually received about this book is from climate change-denying meteorologists who say that, you know, I shouldn't be saying that the climate is changing and affecting weather. Um, and that's obviously not all the meteorologists that I spoke with, but, but it did surprise me quite a bit. Um, and Chris Lancey, uh, a wonderful meteorologist and really sort of charismatic star of the National Hurricane Center, has undergone a lot of criticism because he has taken a very moderate, um, and some might even say skeptical position on the effect of climate change in terms of storms like hurricanes. Um, and so we should say, so too has the United Nations. What we do know without a fact, though, is the fact that I'm sorry, without a doubt, is the fact that hurricanes derive their energy from warm ocean water. So the warmer the ocean water is, the stronger the storm is going to be. What we saw in the case of Sandy was unusually warm ocean temperatures, um, and that's, you know, become the norm, I think, pretty much. NOAA just released a new report saying that we once again endured the hottest year on record last year. So these warm ocean waters feed a storm, and the further north the warm water goes, the further north a storm can go. So whereas, you know, the ocean temperatures off the coast of New York, say, um, 50 years ago may have been such that it kind of killed the storm and, and sort of took away its energy, those warmer sea temperatures allow that storm to keep pushing for further north um, and also to be bigger and stronger. The other thing we know without a doubt is the fact that sea levels are rising. And as sea levels rise, they have a, a really sort of exponential effect on storm surge and its reach. So while, you know, Sandy 100 years ago may have done X amount of damage to a place like New York, that storm is going to do significantly more damage now because the sea levels are, are higher, the surge then is higher, and it can reach further. What most meteorologists say is that the storm, we're not going to necessarily have more storms, but the storms that we do have then are going to be bigger, and they're also going to be weirder because they're not necessarily following the old rules. And that makes them really hard to predict because so much of the modeling system that meteorologists use for any extreme weather 
is based on past precedent. And what we see right now is that past precedent, precedent is not really our current reality. We see these massive snowfalls in places like New York because of the sea level, I'm sorry, the temperatures of the Great Lakes. We see hurricanes in places we haven't seen them before, typhoons in Hawaii, tornadoes in Washington, uh, you know, just crazy weather. And so it really requires a completely new paradigm in terms of weather prediction. Mm-hmm. You know, you spoke of storm surge, and that was a term that eluded me until you described it so well in your book. And I'd love for you to help our listeners understand what storm surge is and the impact that it can have on storm-affected areas. And this is a really important point. This was a surprise to me in my research. Consistently throughout history, more people have died, significantly more people have died as a result of storm surge than wind with hurricanes. A lot more people drown than they do um, get caught in houses that get blown over or something else that would be a wind-related accident. And, and, and this is really because of the power of the storm. So as a storm moves across, the ocean, it basically creates a tiny little vacuum as it is sort of sucking up energy and sucking up uh, moisture from the air. And then it sort of, it sort of almost, it literally kind of raises the water. If you can picture kind of like a bubble that it would create. And as it moves, it's pushing water in front of it. And, and it continues to push it as it moves and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. That's okay when you're in the open ocean because the, there's enough depth that it can kind of just sort of dissipate all of that. But as you get close to land, what you start to see is this, this very sort of rapid rise of water. And so many people affected by the surge in places like Long Island and Staten Island um, are really dealing with something right now that's very close to PTSD. They had no idea. They thought, well, it's probably sort of a gradual rising of water, like it's an inch and then it's two inches and then it's three inches. But that was not their experience in Sandy. Sandy hit so hard so fast that there was really kind of like um, almost like a tidal wave, like a sort of mini tsunami scenario for people where one second their streets were dry and then they'd look out and they'd literally see this wall of water coming mm-hmm. at them. And that's, that's how quite a few New Yorkers lost their lives. Um, and then that really has to come down with all sorts of really complicated issues like topography, tide, uh, the further north you go in the U.S., obviously the more dramatic the tides are. Um, so if a surge hits at high tide, like it did in the case of Sandy, you're not just dealing with the surge, you're dealing with a high tide as well. Um, so surge can, in fact, be a lot more deadly in places like New York than it is in places like New Orleans. And I don't think a lot of people expect that. Mm-hmm. Certainly not. Um, describe for us, you know, again, going back to the human interest um, stories within your book, talk to us about some of the things that happened in Manhattan. I was particularly interested in what was happening in some of the hospitals that were hit very hard. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. And these are really, you know, tragic and also heroic stories that I was, I felt really honored to be able to tell. And because the evacuation orders came so late to New York, um, and because Mayor Bloomberg made the decision not to evacuate assisted care facilities, hospitals, places like that, uh, we saw people really kind of push to the limit in terms of their ability to cope. And, um, Mayor Bloomberg and his staff was under the impression that the flood levels and the surge levels from the storm would probably mimic Hurricane Irene from the year before, where we didn't see massive flooding to the subways. We didn't see massive power outages in New York City. 
Um, they were catastrophically wrong about that, of course, and, and we saw massive power outages. Um, and a lot of hospitals, they had trained and they had drilled for this sort of eventuality, but they had always done so assuming their generators would work. They really put a lot of faith in those generators. But the generators, in large part, were underground or at ground level, and so they flooded out. And so what we saw were these incredibly sort of harrowing moments where um, teams of staff members, everyone from custodians and dietitians to doctors and hospital administrators, walking arm in arm to get either neonatal infants or heart patients, diabetes patients, down 18, 20 flights of stairs in the dark. Uh, just you, you and they kept saying you know, it was like a horror movie, you know. And, and I wanted to try to to, to uh, depict that sense of sort of suspense and chaos that they felt. And in some cases, patients um, were trapped on upper floors for days, uh, and their care providers had to make incredibly difficult decisions about how to deal with that. In some cases, people were losing um, really important technology that they needed to help them stay alive. So, again, it was one of those scenarios where we thought we knew what the crisis would be and we thought we knew how to deal with it. And Sandy kind of showed that that we really aren't nearly as prepared as we thought we were. What about some of the families uh, who were overcome by floods? You know, you mentioned Long Island, uh, Staten Island. What stories stick out in your mind as, um, you know, very typical uh, of an atypical situation like Sandy? I think most people heard the warnings, and there was some confusion. Is it a hurricane? Is it something else? So people felt a lot of confusion about that. They didn't really know what the storm was. Um, but a lot of people heard these warnings. They had endured similar warnings almost exactly a year before with Hurricane Irene, and they thought, well, you know, Irene came through, didn't do any damage at all. Some of these families heeded the evacuation orders for Hurricane Irene, went inland, found themselves trapped by the inland flooding, unable to get back to their homes on the coast, which were fine. Um, and then when they did get home, they found out that their homes had been robbed or looted. And so for them, it was kind of a, a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me situation. And they thought, mm-hmm. we're not going to go down that road again. Um, and so they stayed um, and in some cases died, which is, of course, very upsetting. Uh, you know, there were other families who made difficult decisions thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe now we can try to get out. And it was too late and they were caught in their cars. Um, so, so again, you know, these are decisions that we all have to make. Um, and we all make them all the time. And uh, one woman in particular, a mother of, of two young kids, really thought she was doing the right thing. She was not in an evacuation zone, but she was close to one. She was home alone. Her husband was at work. And she thought, I don't feel safe here. We don't have power. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to bundle up the kids and get them to higher ground and get them to my family in Brooklyn. Um, and and they were washed away. So very tragic stories, um, very human stories. And I really wanted to make sure that people understood that it's, it's, it's all too easy to take these tragedies and kind of gloss over them. And I wanted to make sure people knew that there were names and faces and stories behind these numbers that we see, whether it's death tolls or homes lost. I, I would imagine that as you were conducting these interviews and doing your research, that it took a, a toll on you. Um, a personal toll on you. As you collected story after story of people's loss and fear, how did that impact you, Catherine? It's it's very hard to hear these stories, you know, and, and, and it's very easy to internalize them very quickly, either 
because I'm a stepmom to two great boys or because I'm a sailor and I know how easy it is to get caught at sea. And so it, it was really hard. Luckily, I have a very loving and patient partner who would, you know, keep things in perspective for me as well, too. And, and I would always try to sort of counter these upsetting stories with some of the really great heroic stories. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with um, some of the meteorologists involved in the story, with the Coast Guard rescuers. Uh, with the hurricane hunters, and, and knowing that there are people out there willing to risk their lives to, to keep us safe is a, is a pretty great message to go to sleep with at night. That's fantastic. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Catherine, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today, if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest is Catherine Miles. She's the author of a brand new book called Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy. And believe me, it is a tough book to put down. It's a real page turner. It goes through um, a, a wide variety of personal experiences, whether it's folks who were involved in the forecasting of Sandy, people who were out to sea when Sandy hit, people who were on land and and just tells the story from a very human perspective. I I just loved it. It was a fantastic read. Um, Catherine, I want to ask you, you know, it's been two years now that have passed since Hurricane Sandy hit. What evidence, if any, have you seen to suggest improvements are being made to our National Weather Service? We do have some, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that. One of the most important things that happened was immediately after the storm, the entire meteorological world basically stood up and said, we can't have this again. We can't have this situation where the National Hurricane Center um, is so sort of um, hemmed in that they can't issue watches, warnings, and advisories for a storm when it starts to transition like it did. 
Um, and, and when that happened, uh, you know, there was a lot of criticism uh, directed at the National Hurricane Center, and a lot of people, especially private meteorologists uh, in the industry, were like, look, you know, just keep issuing the watches and warnings. It's that important. Um, and what they told me was, was we literally thought our software systems would break if we tried to do this, if we tried to issue a hurricane warning for a storm that wasn't a hurricane. Um, so it was a real mess, and it led to a lot of confusion. And, and immediately afterwards, um, the the meteorological association basically stood up and said, no, no more. Um, and so the National Hurricane Center was able to change their protocols. So the next time we do have a major storm, even if it starts to transition into this hybrid like Sandy does, um, they'll be able to continue issuing those watches and warnings. And that's really important because so many people look to the, to the sort of national level agencies for that information. And, and hopefully the message will be clearer and more decisive. Mm-hmm. Um, we have not seen a lot that's changed in terms of funding for the National Weather Service. Uh, what we have is, again, we have the potential for a satellite gap that could be as long as 17 months. Um, we have uh, the Government Accountability Office looking at possible mitigations that we can use if we do have this satellite gap. They're not great. They involve things like... Um, Anything like using an aircraft, like a Hurricane Hunter aircraft, to buying weather data from the Chinese military, and that ought to scare everybody, you know? Oh, my. Um, we, have, we have outmoded equipment. We have broken equipment. We have not seen an injection of funding into that. Um, we do see some computer updates that are going to start happening this year, and that's great. It, it's yet to be determined whether that's enough. Um, so some steps, and we should acknowledge those steps and, and be glad about those steps, but they're not sufficient, and that's important. Wow. And, and I can't imagine, you know, anything more basic than um, this kind of service, you know, for public safety. It's just unfathomable that we've allowed our our systems to become so antiquated. It's It's maddening, really. Um, have you seen, besides the federal government, have you seen any action on the part of local and state governments to improve storm resistance or evacuation protocols for their citizens? What are you seeing in that arena? One of the most interesting things that came out of Sandy was a series of lawsuits brought about by people with functional needs and disabilities. And they said, look, you know, the emergency management plans and the evacuation plans for our community don't take me into account. Um, and we've seen, we've seen three big ones so far, one in Los Angeles County, um, one in Northern California, and one in New York City, where, where um, through class action lawsuits, people successfully sued and said, look, we're being wrongly discriminated against in these emergency management plans. There's another one that's currently underway in Washington, D.C. And so this has been really great. It's called to attention, I think, on a national level, um, the importance of emergency management plans and the importance of, of making sure that they accommodate all of our citizens, especially our most vulnerable citizens. Um, so those three communities that I mentioned, they're currently working to create plans that do protect all citizens equally. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, in terms of other things, whether it's, you know, the grid system, whether it's looking at artificial barriers, we're starting to see a little bit of movement there. The amount of funding that's required is so incredibly immense that I think it's really daunting for people. New York is currently considering proposals to do everything from 
building artificial islands and barriers to floodgates like you might see in Europe as well, too. Um, we haven't really seen anything decisive about those plans, but they're, they're currently underway, um, and, and there has been a promise of funding, so we'll see if that follows through. And when you talk about the funding being daunting, is it because uh, we're looking at this as purely a public dollar sort of investment, or have you seen any movement to make it sort of a public-private partnership in terms of, I mean, when you think about upgrading things like our electrical system, I mean, you have private companies that are utility companies who might be involved with that. Have you seen any movement to combine public and private dollars to accomplish some of these tasks? I haven't, and that's such an interesting question from, from all perspectives, including weather forecasting. You know, one of the things that surprised me the most um, recently while I've been on tour with this book is I, I went to the Weather Channel and did a couple of shows there, and I was blown away by how much more sophisticated the technology was at the Weather Channel. Um, so, so are we going to see a situation where, for instance, private forecasting meets public dissemination? Maybe. Certainly, I think that it's mutually beneficial for power companies to be working with the government to create really good, sustainable, resilient technologies. Historically, we've been a culture that tends to respond on the back end of a, of a disaster. You know, we're really pretty good at getting water and blankets and clothes out to people. And, and you know, even with the debacle of the FEMA trailers during Katrina, we, we, we ironed that out, too, so we can even kind of get people temporary housing. But we've really fallen short is on the preventative sort of front end of a disaster. And I think part of the problem is, is that if Americans can't see it happening, we don't necessarily know that we're getting a good value out of our dollar. And I think that creates um, a mindset that really needs to be changed for all of us, that, that even if it's sort of an invisible infrastructure upgrade, it's still worth our time and money. And in the, in the long run, it's, it's going to make any disaster recovery that much faster. Well, it occurs to me, you know, though we're not great on the on the front end of some of these disasters the, the we live in an information age where people expect to be able to get whatever information they want right when they want it immediately to their smartphone and if there was a way to tie these sorts of issues to you know what people want to know what people expect to be able to access um you know it it seems like maybe there there might be a way to to prompt a little action in that regard what are the most important takeaways that you hope the people who are reading your book will, will glean from Superstorm? What What are you hoping people will do or people will think or believe once they read your book, Catherine? But, you know, the general consensus, even among, you know, climate skeptical meteorologists, is, is that the weather as we know it is changing. Um, and, and everything we thought we knew, everything we thought we could bank on, really isn't valid anymore. And, and for quite a while, we used to sort of toss around this term, you know, storm of the century. You know, Sandy's the storm of the century. Katrina's the storm of the century. And, and what meteorologists agree about is that it just isn't true anymore. And what was once a sort of freak storm or one-in-a-hundred-year storm is really now sort of a, a possibility every year. And that's not just hurricanes on the East Coast. That's all weather. So, so I think we have to confront that, and I think we have to be ready for that on every possible level, whether that's sort of asking our government to take action. But it's, I think it's also assuming risk and responsibility as individuals. 
I asked a social scientist who specializes in risk, uh, you know, what are the most dangerous things that, that we face? And he said, you know, most Americans think it's a terrorist attack or they think it's a nuclear disaster, but it's getting in your car, it's, it's your personal health, and it's natural disaster. And, and we have not yet internalized that message, and it really is time to do that. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like, um, from everything you've seen and everything you know, uh, we're prepared for another Sandy? Uh, are, we, are we in any way ready for it, or do we just really have a long way to go? We do have a long way to go. We have a long way to go, whether it's earthquake preparedness, whether it's flood preparedness, whether it's storm preparedness. And, and I think we've really banked on the idea that uh, it can't happen to us. You know, we've done that individually. We've done that collectively. But, you know, one of my favorite quotes from the book comes from the head of the Coast Guard sector in North Carolina. And he says, you know, Mother Nature plays to win, and she wins every time. She's going to beat us every time, you know? And, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's really easy in the 21st century to lose sight of that. We think we, we're, we're in control, but we're just not, you know? And so we really have to be ready, and that's really the message, I think. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for being on, and thank you for this tremendous book. Folks, get out there, Google it, get on Amazon and find it. It's called Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy by Catherine Miles. It's been a pleasure having you on. Folks, we're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.